Hi, I'm Anne McElhenney. And I'm Phil McAleer. And welcome to day 16 of the Harvey Weinstein trial, Unfiltered, a daily podcast using reenactments of the most dramatic moments of verbatim testimony from the trial. But first, let's just remind you of what this trial is all about. In a case that basically launched the Me Too movement, movie producer Harvey Weinstein faces two charges of rape and one of a criminal sex act concerning two separate women. He also faces charges of predatory sexual assault, which carry a possible life sentence. So today, Donna Ratuna was doing the closing arguments for the defense and a little bit about who she is. She thinks that the Me Too movement is dangerous. She says we can't have movements that strip us of our fundamental rights. She gave an interview and said that. What happens with Believe All Women is that we're just supposed to believe you without any pushback or questioning or cross-examination. I think that's dangerous, she said. That's what she said an interview and I think she's fulfilled that in court. She's definitely put a lot of questioning and pushback and cross-examination. The jury will decide whether it was effective. So Uh, she grew up in Chicago and she's been through the whole system. You know, she was in um, Cook County State's Attorney's Office in 1997 and three years later became an assistant state attorney in Illinois working on domestic violence cases and felony claims. By 2003, she'd gone into private practice with a defense lawyer And two years later, at the age of 29, which seems on the young side, she started her own law firm. In Chicago, she became known for her personal style and for winning criminal trials. Yeah, I think she's only lost one sex crime. She particularly specialised in sex crime. We've noticed she's been the most stylishly dressed person in the courtroom. And she has a whole reason for that. She says jurors appreciate people taking pride in how you dress. That's what she said in her previous interviews. So she arrived today. She looked pretty happy. She was chewing gum, which I don't approve of. She was in black, which I don't know if that is a, um, the prosecutors were in black, but they're always in black anyway. So I, one thing I will say is that we had a first today, we had uh, Harvey Weinstein spoke in court. And as this is verbatim testimony, this is a verbatim podcast, I would be remiss to not have Harvey Weinstein speak on this podcast if he spoke in court. So the judge asked him a very serious question. Are you sure you don't want to speak in your own defense? Because I read some reports that you really wanted to. So Let's hear the judge asking and Harvey Weinstein's response. Mr. Weinstein, I just want to make certain that it is your decision to not testify at this trial. You had a significant period of time, I believe something greater than a half hour after the people rested, prior to your side resting, to talk to your attorneys about whether or not you were going to testify or not. And I asked you a couple of questions, or I asked you one question about talking to your attorneys, and you indicated you did not wish to testify. But given your subsequent statements, I want to make absolutely certain that it is your decision to not testify at this trial. Yes, Your Honor. So, is it correct it is your decision to not testify at this trial? Yes, Your Honor. Is it correct you did not wish to testify at this trial? Yes. So now let's hear Donna Rotuno's opening remarks. Yes. And she speaks directly to the jury. And mm. this has to be the highest profile case of her career. And it, I thought it was very dramatic. I thought it was very powerful. Let's hear her laying out her stall, if you like, and her defense of Harvey Weinstein. Here she goes. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Before I delve into the sum and substance of the summation, I want to first thank you for your time, your attention, your promptness every day. We know that it is not easy leaving your own lives and coming here to listen to what we present to you every day, and we appreciate it. 
We know it is difficult to be pulled from your respective lives and asked to serve your fellow citizens. But as citizens of this great country, it is one of the most important duties we have. Harvey thanks you. After all, your fate, his fate, now lies in your hands. Take that responsibility seriously. You 12 are now going to be the judges of the facts and evidence in this case. You will wear the black robes. Well, here we are. We finally came to the point of the trial where all of the questions you asked, you were asked during jury selection matter. When you walked into this courtroom at the beginning of January and discovered this is the case you were called for, you knew the importance, the significance, the scrutiny you felt as a result. You listened to all the questions asked of you during jury selection, and you all said that you would listen to the evidence and you would make a fair determination after listening to everything that was presented before you. Just a few weeks ago, you were all plucked from your own lives, brought here. You were at work. You were at work, and you were brought here and asked to do the right thing in a room full of strangers. You don't know me. You don't know Judge Burke, the prosecutors, Miriam Haley, Jessica Mann, or Mr. Weinstein. You are being asked to make a decision about Mr. Weinstein, another human being. It is not an easy task but it is one of the most important that will ever be asked of you. You promised during jury selection you would have the courage to make the right decision, even if it was not the most popular. You promised to render your verdict based on evidence or the lack of evidence, no matter how unpopular you might be when you went back to work or back to your homes. The district attorney has failed to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. On behalf of Mr. Weinstein, we are imploring you to have the courage to tell them that by saying not guilty on all counts. During deliberations, I'm going to ask you that you use your New York City common sense. Use it as a beacon of light. And every time you feel emotion taking off, I want you to remember that common sense when evaluating this evidence because it will guide you to the right answers. The defendant is not required to prove that he or she is not guilty. In fact, the defendant is not required to prove or disprove anything. To the contrary, the people have the burden of proving the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. That means before you can find the defendant guilty of a crime, the people must prove beyond a reasonable doubt every element of the crime, including that the defendant is the person who committed the crime. The burden of proof never shifts from the people to the defendant. And if the people fail to satisfy their burden of proof, you must find the defendant not guilty. If the people meet their burden of proof, you must find the defendant guilty. When does our law, what does our law mean when it requires proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? The law uses the term proof beyond a reasonable doubt to tell you how convincing the evidence of guilt must be to permit a verdict of guilty. The law recognizes in dealing with human affairs, there are very few things in this world that we know with absolute certainty. You all come from different experiences, and you bring different things from your own lives into the deliberation room. No matter where you grew up, no matter where you went to school, no matter what you do for a living, each one of you has one powerful vote. Although you must deliberate with an open mind, you must never be bullied or pressured to change your decision. Even if you are now friendly with somebody sitting next to you or someone you spent time with in the last four weeks you consider a friend, stand your ground. Historically, 
You are the last line of defense in this country from overzealous media, from an overzealous prosecution. You are the ones that are here asking, being asked to make possibly an unpopular decision. You don't have to like Mr. Weinstein. This is not a popularity contest. And you have to remember that we are not here to criminalize morality. And thank God, because if we were, we would probably all be in some trouble. In this country, it is the unpopular people that need juries the most. So I want you to remember that. When you are in the deliberations room, remember the unpopular person needs you the most. Whatever your verdict may be, it must not rest upon baseless speculations, nor may it be influenced in any way by bias, prejudice, sympathy, or by a desire to bring an end to your deliberations or to avoid an unpleasant duty. So Donald Rotondo made an interesting point about the way the prosecution have framed their case. And actually, I felt it wasn't just the prosecution framing their case like that. I did feel sometimes that Harvey Weinstein was in his biggest production ever, his biggest movie ever. You know, you had actresses, you had scripts, you had casting. But the point that Donna Rotuno made when she talked about script was that she said that the prosecution had framed their case and it's like a script, but a script in which all the women in the script were powerless. Yes. Um, and it's an interesting point. Let's listen yeah. to her making that they, point. They, they had like created their own universe, like the way movies do create their own universe. And so let's hear that. There is something that I want to talk to you about that the government brought up in their opening statement. In their opening statement, Ms. Hast we have a sinister tale of a man who searched out his victim by putting women through a series of tests. The government has to weave a story because without a story, they know that if you had to look at the evidence alone from their perspective, they lose. They know they lose the ultimate test when each woman took the witness stand. So they had to deflect and try to trick you into making sense of the nonsensical. Try to explain the inexplicable. The irony is that the ADAs in this case are the producers and they are writing the script. In their story, they have created a universe that strips adult women of common sense, autonomy, and responsibility. It is offensive, actually. In their universe, women are not responsible for the parties they attend, the men they flirt with, the choices they make to further their own careers, the hotel room invitations, the plane tickets they accept, the jobs they ask for help to obtain. In their universe, they are not even responsible for sitting at their computers sending emails to someone across the country. In this script... The powerful man is the villain, and he's so unattractive and large that no woman would ever want to sleep with him voluntarily. Regret does not exist in this world. Only regret renamed as rape. Ms. Aluzzi is going to address you tomorrow. She will go on and on. She will be emotional. She will be invective, and she will rile you up. But you have seen the evidence, and it does not matter how many times she points at Mr. Weinstein or me. The evidence will not become more helpful to her plight. Quite the contrary. So then we get to the substantive issues, and Ms. Rotuno was using um, a slide projector, and she displayed all the names of the witnesses. But in the end, she said, she explained to the jury that only two names mattered in the end. Those two names are Miriam Haley's and Jessica Mann. And, and that's important because it's complicated, but he's actually only criminally charged with sexually assaulting Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann. The other four other witnesses are Molyneux witnesses. They're, for jurisdictional reasons or statute of limitations, reasons he's not be charged with assaulting Annabella Sciorra 
or Dawn, Donning, or any of, any of the women you'll hear about later. So they're to show a previous bad acts and a predatory assault charge. But the jury will not stand up at the end and say guilty, not guilty on those four women. They will only stand up and say guilty, not guilty on Miriam Haley and Jessica Mann. So let's hear her lay out that scenario. And then Donna Rotono methodically presents the flaws in Miriam Haley's story by laying out the timeline of events. Let's hear that. You have heard from many witnesses in this case. They are all listed on the screen. But in the end, it only comes down to those two. And if you do not believe Miriam Haley or Jessica Mann, you don't have to evaluate anything else. You don't get to Annabella Shiora if you do not believe Miriam Haley. And if you do not believe Jessica Mann, you don't get to Annabella Shiora. Let's talk about Miriam Haley. The government will tell you emails don't matter, that they believe the truth, and that the truth was that Miriam Haley was sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. But for some reason, she decided to put that in a box and move on. Put it in a box and go on as normal. Well... In what other circumstances would a real-time evidence not matter? If this were a kidnapping case and the alleged victim sent an email to her kidnapper saying, thanks for the vacation, had a great time, lots of love, would that be relevant to whether a kidnapping occurred? If someone was charged with stealing a watch and there was an email from the alleged victim saying, hey, how is that watch I gave you? Wear it in good health. Would that matter? You bet it would. And it matters here. If there was one email between Miriam Haley and Harvey Weinstein or between Jessica Mann and Harvey Weinstein that in any way, shape or form established that assault occurred, there wouldn't be a screen big enough for them to put it up here for you. They would say, look, don't you see there is proof? There it is in black and white. We have shown you black and white. We have shown you that it matters, that the truth matters, and it does not change. This is the timeline of events of Miriam Haley. She meets Harvey at an aviator premiere with Michael White in 2004. In 2006, she claims she meets Mr. Weinstein at a hotel in Cannes and claims of an awkward instance where he asks her for a massage and she's offended. In June of 2006, after being so offended, she goes to work on her Project Runway, which is a Weinstein Company show. She then, after moving to New York to work at Project Runway, goes to meet Harvey at the Mercer Hotel, June 27th of 2006. Sometime in June, she receives a Paris invitation she does not accept. July 10th, she claims sexual assault at his Soho apartment. The next day, she flies to L.A. on a Weinstein ticket. She comes back from L.A. on July 24th on a Weinstein ticket and two days later meets Mr. Weinstein and engages in a consensual sexual encounter. July 31st, she contacts Harvey's office to see if she can go. And then after that, three days later, she flies to London on a Weinstein ticket. September 8th, 2006, Miriam reaches out to Harvey and his assistant about seeing him in London. And then in 2007, she pitches a TV show to him. Later in 2007, she requests premiere tickets from Harvey and she continues contact with Mr. Weinstein after the fact. Then Donna Rotano talked and told the jury about Miriam Haley and talked about her, you know, state of mind, which is which maybe sounds funny, but Miriam Haley had a calendar and in it she wrote... And she doodled. Uh, uh, ...how she felt and she wrote hearts and loves. I love New York, I love uh, New York and hearts and hearts and hearts. And all of this was happening at the very same time as the alleged assaults. Yes. So let's have a listen to that dialogue. 
Let's look at her state of mind during this time in June in New York. I know it was discussed at length when she was on the witness stand, and she was asked, do these hearts, these flowers, do they indicate your state of mind at the time? She comes to New York. She's living in New York. I love love. I love love. I love New York. I love stuff. We can turn to June 22nd. This is your entry for June 22nd. All right? I think everyone can see it. This is your entry in your calendar for June 22nd through June 24th, correct? Yes. You write, I love New York. I love love. I love New York. I love stuff and draw a bunch of hearts above it and what looks like a rocket ship. Yes? Is it fair to say when you drew that, that reflected how you felt about New York at that time? Answer, yes. You drew, I love these things, and you drew hearts, correct? Things you draw when you are in a good mood. Answer, yes. Now let's get to June 27th of 2006. We know from the email on June 1st that her time on Project Runway has come to an end. And she had told you about the incident in Cannes at the Majestic where she left feeling upset and humiliated. She takes a request from Mr. Weinstein to meet her at the Mercer Hotel in New York City. She talks about that meeting as wonderful. They were joking. It was a great meeting. And she felt like at that point she didn't have to worry about how Mr. Weinstein was acting. Of course she tells you she was certainly not acting flirtatious with Mr. Weinstein. Because, of course, no one in this case ever acted flirtatious with Mr. Weinstein in any way. They have a nighttime meeting in a bar. So when we talked about that common sense earlier, I want you to think about what that meeting was really about. You know that Miriam Haley was a flirtatious person because you heard it from her roommate, Liz Enton. Liz Enton tells us about a meeting at Cipriani with Harvey and Miriam that Miriam left out. And Liz Enton knows about it because she said it was the only time she ever met Harvey Weinstein. And she tells you Harvey Weinstein grabbed Mimi and said how attractive she was. So for Miriam to say she never had any intentions with Mr. Weinstein and that she never knew of any intentions Mr. Weinstein had with her is clearly false. And again, this is what happens when we don't look at real-time evidence and we only listen to someone else when they come into a courtroom. Mr. Weinstein was a busy man. In 2006, in 2008, in 2013, 14, 15, 16, he was calendared to the umph degree, meetings every half hour. And for them to make you think that he developed some grand plan to meet women is obscene. Miriam talks about how she declines that Paris invitation because she knew that it was romantic in nature. So this invitation happened shortly after the Mercer, where she says she leaves feeling great. She talks about how Mr. Weinstein shows up at her apartment. It was just the two of you alone in the apartment at that time, yes? Nobody else was there. Nobody else was with you and Mr. Weinstein at that point, correct? No, apart from and potentially the pets. So he does not put his hands on her, does not touch her, two people there alone. She says, you have a terrible reputation with women, and he leaves. We know the story about how he got in. It was unbelievably contrived, as I talked about. Get in the front door, get through the second door, make a left and right, find the apartment, and enter the apartment? Question. A regular apartment, Mr. Weinstein, could just not walk right in because there is a security door, right? There is a buzzer. You need to buzz in to get into the apartment, correct? So Mr. Weinstein would have had to sit out there all day unless you came to the door, correct? Is that story credible? 
That is for you to decide. It is for you to decide, or is this a story she contrived to try to make sense of all of the other things that they are trying to make you believe took place between Ms. Haley and Mr. Weinstein? Miriam claimed to jokingly tell Harvey that he had a bad reputation. And just like that, he leaves. He's gone. He's not interested in her anymore, and he likes her less. This is important because she uses this interaction as the reason she continues to stay in contact with him. She says, I was afraid he didn't like me as much. If you think about that statement and you think about how that applies to the relationship they allegedly had based on her account, why would she care? Why would she care that she thought he liked her less because she didn't go to Paris? She cared because they had more of a relationship than she wants you to believe. She cared because they had a flirtatious relationship. She cared because she was using him for jobs. She cared because she wanted him to fly her places. But she cannot tell you that because then the rest of her actions don't make sense. This is what we have to ask ourselves with regards to Paris. We knew she had an issue with regards to a work visa. So she was asked, could you leave the country? Come back and still get it. That should be in still get in. She answers, I have no idea. Now, if you are here on a visa and you stay longer or here on a different type of visa and you try to leave the country, you cannot get back in. This is why she does not go to Paris. And we know that because she has no problem saying, I can't go to Paris and then accepts a ticket to L.A., So that visa point was one that we had obviously mentioned last week and it had jumped out at us as Irish immigrants who know know a thing or two about visas that it was could have been obviously a contributing factor to the reason why she didn't want to go with him to Paris was that she had these visa difficulties. She'd worked for Project Runway illegally and coming back, if you'd gone to Paris and had come back and had to answer questions to the immigration authorities, it would be pretty serious to lie to them. Yeah. So then Rotano talked about emails and, you know, Rotano did a great job and covered things really comprehensively. And she, she said emails are very important. All the emails in the case back up, she said, the defence theory and she said, there's not one email out there from any of the accusers or the victims that says an assault actually took place. No one emailed anyone anytime, anywhere and said, I was assaulted. And she says, you can be sure that if there was one, there wouldn't be a screen big enough for the prosecution to put it up. But they don't have it, so they didn't put it up. So then Rotono then showed the jury a big slide which says, caught in a lie. And uh, she digs into Miriam Haley's story and says... Whenever Miss Haley is confronted with awkward new evidence, she always creates new stories. So let's hear that. So she says, I do not want to go to Paris with Harvey Weinstein because Harvey Weinstein was showing some interest in me and I did not want to be a part of that experience. But then how does she explain away going to L.A.? It is a longer flight, actually, but she does not have to leave the country. So here is where things get interesting for Miriam and Miriam's story. She goes to the grand jury on June 18th. She tells the grand jury that she goes to the Soho apartment on July 10th because as we left it, I thought Harvey Weinstein was mad at me for rejecting the Paris invitation. Now remember, this is the woman who has been to the Majestic, claims she leaves crying because she's so insulted by the request for a massage. This is a woman who says he barged his way into her apartment. She wanted him to leave. This is a woman who says... Oh, 
I could not go to Paris with him because I have no interest in him whatsoever. But then on July 10th, thinks absolutely nothing about going to his house in Soho. When asked why she agreed to go to the apartment alone, her response, she had no reason not to. If she had no reason not to, then you have to call into question whether anything happened at the Majestic and whether there was of any issue about her rejecting Paris or him coming to her house. Because if there were, then she would have had a reason. She would have had a reason not to go. This is an excuse for a fact that she cannot admit. Either Miriam Haley did not want to be alone with Harvey Weinstein and would not put herself in such a position, or she did want to be alone with him, and she cannot admit that fact to you. But either way, there is a huge question you need to ask yourself there about the motivation for going to that apartment on July 10th. And remember, Border Patrol came and told you Harvey Weinstein arrived back in New York at 5.30 p.m. at Teterboro made stops we know from his credit cards, and somehow got home and met Miriam on July 10th. Miriam's lying about the nature of her interactions with Harvey Weinstein at the Majestic Hotel in Cannes and the Paris invitation, or she is telling the truth and she agrees to go to his hotel anyway? Either way, you need to look at these actions and her testimony, and it should raise serious doubt as to her credibility. She previously told the grand jury, as we left it, I had rejected Paris and I thought he was mad at me. But on July 9th, she sends an email to Charles Meach, one of Mr. Weinstein's assistants, and writes, Harvey kindly offered to fly me to Los Angeles. So which is it? She can't go to Paris, but she is willing to go to L.A.? Here is the email to Charles, and again, This is now after the Majestic, and this is after he allegedly barges his way into her home, but he kindly offers to fly her to L.A. and she waits. She waits until Sunday to call, and she wants to leave two days later, signs it, all the best, Miriam. Once she is confronted, she stated that when she testified in front of the grand jury in June, she still had not seen this email. What don't you think about that answer? What that tells you is she has created whatever she creates in her mind, and then when she is confronted with actual evidence that she cannot run from, she realizes why it's a problem. She realizes that she has now said, oh, that's right, he did fly me to L.A., when she never told anyone else that before. This also illustrates the problem that I talked about before with Dr. Ziv and self-reporting versus relying on objective evidence. Miriam did not decline any invitation to Paris for fear of being alone with Mr. Weinstein. Mr. Weinstein wasn't mad at her. He offered to fly her to Los Angeles and she accepted. This is where the truth leaves a paper trail. Why does Harvey Weinstein offer to fly her to Los Angeles? Now, do you know many employers who are going to fly you to Los Angeles for two weeks so you can see your friend having a baby? She says because her friend was having a baby and she asked him to. Of course not. She and Mr. Weinstein were having a relationship. He offered to fly her to Los Angeles like you would if you were someone in his position and you were seeing someone who wanted to go and see a friend. And why do we know that? 
because she wants to wrap it around the Clerks premiere, acting as if she was going Los Angeles because of that and was able to stay for the friend. We know that's not true because she doesn't even go to the Clerks premiere. She blows the Clerks premiere off. And then again, here we are looking at her state of mind and her rocket ships and her hearts. Why did Harvey offer to fly her to Los Angeles? She said she was broke. She stayed there for two weeks and she flew in on the day of the clerk's premiere. The prosecutor's opening statement, they say, in fact, that the day she reached out to take advantage of the offer, Harvey Weinstein invited her to his apartment. Miriam, having just accepted the flight to L.A. and the premiere and wanting to keep this professional relationship, accepted the invitation. Again, we are back to this wanting to label everything as a professional relationship, and they have to do that. They have to label it as a professional relationship because if they label it as what it was, we wouldn't be here. Soho, July 10th. July 10th is the alleged incident where Miriam says that Harvey Weinstein assaulted her in his apartment. Now remember, she is flying to Los Angeles on his ticket the next day. Regardless, regardless of the version of events that she has described to you leading up to July 10th, what do we know? We know that Miriam went to Harvey's apartment alone to spend time with him at night after he returns from Paris, which is what you do when you are seeing someone and it's new. What do you do when you are in a new relationship with someone and they fly home from a trip? You go to their house. While she is in L.A., she reaches out to Colin Callender about other job opportunities. And then on the bottom of July 17th, 10 o'clock p.m., hospital, baby. She goes to a spa. There is a birthday party. There are hearts. There are flowers. When we, again, we asked her, when you put these things down, is that your state of mind? Is that the state of mind of someone who has been assaulted the way she claims she was assaulted? She returns from Los Angeles on July 24th. She takes a 3.15 flight. She doesn't get back into New York until almost midnight. She spends the next day running errands as you would if you were gone for 14 days. In that list of things, it says what she needs to do. And who is the first person she makes an appointment with after being away in L.A. for two weeks? The first person, 5 o'clock p.m., H.W., because that's what you do when you are seeing someone after you have been traveling. You make plans to see them. And then Rod Turner goes on to talk about the Tribeca consensual encounter that Miss Haley had with Harvey Weinstein. And that as time went on, and in fact, as the trial approached, she added aspects to mm -hmm. that narrative and changed aspects to that narrative. Let's hear Don Rotono explain that. Let's go to the Tribeca Grand Hotel on July 26 of 2006, the day after Mimi was home for a full day in New York. When she first describes this encounter, it comes out that she had consensual sex with Mr. Weinstein. And when she testified, when she spoke to the DA and she testified before the grand jury in 2001, in June, she talked about a consensual sexual encounter with Mr. Weinstein. That's it. As time went on, and as this trial got closer, she testified again. And when she testified the second time, she added that in that consensual sexual encounter, and make no mistake, she told you here that it was consensual, but she added terms. She added terms that he called her a bitch. He called her a whore and that she laid there like a dead fish. Why did she do that? 
because she knows that if you look at her original testimony and description about her grand jury testimony in June, you know that you wouldn't believe this whole encounter. You wouldn't believe that after what happened on July 10th, she would then agree to go to a meeting? So they spin it again. They spin it into something else to make you believe that he is a horrible guy and she just gives in. She did it. It was consensual. She didn't really want to. Again, stripping women of any ability to make their own decision. Stripping women of the choices they make and relabeling it as something else. So then Rotano talked about the obliterations in Miriam Haley's calendar, you know, which were pretty amazing. They scored out all these details. And of course, they were scored out because they contradicted her narrative. And they also contradicted things she'd said on TV to MSNBC or to the Megyn Kelly show. Like, for example, she took a flight to L.A. on Weinstein's dime a day after the rip. So then we come to the lots of love Miriam email, the so-called lots of love Miriam email, which is a very problematic email for the prosecution. And uh, you'll hear it. She reaches out May 27th of 2007. She never got to go to the film, but the gesture was appreciated. Talking about being in London and then a message she sends on June 27th of 2008, two years to the date, two years to the date of the Mercer event. How are you, Harvey? Great to see you in Cannes. I noticed an article in today's New York Post about the Adams family being turned into a Broadway musical. Just to remind you what a genius I am, didn't I tell you that was a great idea like three years ago at the Mercer Bar? Hmm. Lots of love, Mimi. So here she is reminiscing, actually two years ago, at their time at the Mercer Bar, June of 2006. Not something you do to someone who sexually assaulted you. Not an email you send. Lots of love, Miriam. So then Donna Rotano talked about Jessica Mann, the second criminal accuser of Harvey Weinstein. And funny enough, she started off talking about Jessica Mann, but then she talked more about her friend Talita Maya. And, you know, said, it's very interesting. Talita Maya was her friend, her good friend, but she wasn't called by the prosecution. It was actually the defense who called her under a subpoena. And basically because Talita Maya contradicted everything her friend Jessica Mann said about Harvey Weinstein. And, you know, even that initial meeting in the hotel, as she says, Talita Maya, and I'd never heard this said before in the trial, was she was there as the third person to make it look like they weren't on a date. And after the incident in the hotel room, says that she came out and said he went down on me and it was the best sex I've ever had. And this is pretty damning for Jessica Mann. So let's hear Donna Rotono tell the jury about that. And ask yourself, in real time, what story makes more sense to you? The one that Jessica tells you where she says, oh, come upstairs and see the scripts. Or the one that Talita tells you. These are two people who had interest in one another the minute they met at the party in the Hollywood Hills. Talita goes to the restroom thinking they are getting ready to leave. She comes back from the restroom and Harvey and Jessica both say to her, we are going to go upstairs, come up with us. She tells you it was weird, it was strange. Didn't tell you anything about scripts. Didn't say, Harvey said, come up and look at scripts. She was brought into that circumstance because there were two people going out. One is married. She's the third person to make it not look like they are on a date. What does she do? She goes upstairs. She is not telling you about any negotiation, any conversation between Harvey and Jessica. She does not tell you. She's like, should I go in the room? What do you think he wants me in for? None of that happens. They go up to the room. 
Talita sits down, watches some TV. They go into the bedroom. Jessica comes out. Everyone is fine. She drives Jessica home. Jessica does not say anything happened. Jessica continues her ongoing relationship with Mr. Weinstein. What does Jessica say about what happened in that hotel room at the montage? She comes out, and in her words, she says to Talita, he went down on me, and I told him it was the best I ever had. Now, ask yourself in real time if it makes sense to you that that was something forced upon her or if that was an act she engaged in with a person she's now happy to be starting a relationship with. Now, whether she is attracted to him, whether she thinks he's gross or smells and all those horrible things she said when she testified, she made a choice that she wanted to be in his world. She made a choice she wanted the life that he could potentially provide for her. She made a choice that she wanted to go to parties and every time she sent him an email talking about how wonderful he was and how loving, what the tone of her emails were, she made a choice. So basically, piece by piece, you know, Donna Rotano demolished all the allegations. Well, she hopes she demolished all the allegations to the jury. She demolished the idea of the forced threesome uh, with the Italian actress. As she says, the Italian actress says that no one forced her to do anything. Then she talks about the New York rape at the allegedly at the Double Tree Hotel and says it was strange the way that was suddenly brought into the equation. And Donna Rotano explains it's actually a statute of limitations issue that made the case more viable. So let's hear Donna Rotano explain that. Ms. Mann said he put his hand on my back and led me upstairs. Why did she say that? She says that because, again, in the world they create, they want you to believe she didn't have a choice. Ladies and gentlemen, she had her own room. She had her own key. She could have easily, A, not come downstairs, B, gone right back up to her own room and shut the door where her friend was still in the room. But she didn't do those things. What does she tell you? I wanted to go upstairs with Harvey because I thought there is where we could have the more reasonable conversation because she had no reason to fear him, none whatsoever. They had spent time together in L.A. She kept going back night after night after night to see him. She had no reason whatsoever to be afraid of Harvey Weinstein. Zero. And why does Harvey Weinstein get a room at the Doubletree? One, to make it convenient for Jessica so she's not running around New York, not a hotel he normally stayed in. Two, because he was going to see the woman he was having a sexual relationship with. Doesn't that make more sense? Doesn't it make more sense the person you had a sexual relationship with for weeks now comes to your city and you are married, where else are you going to meet her? So that is what they do. Comes, he gets a room, and they go upstairs. And you know what is interesting about the New York encounter? You have to go forward. You have to go forward and look at the messages Jessica Mann sends when she first comes forward with the case against Harvey Weinstein. And she says, the statute of limitations civilly in L.A. bars me. I have a better chance in New York. So what does she have to do? Come up with the only time she's ever been with Harvey Weinstein in New York City. So when is it? It is that. 
what I think is particularly damning, and it's a great point, I think we made it earlier, was Rotono points out in all the communications for years, not with Jessica Mann, but all the accusers, that every communication was positive, nothing suggesting rape or abuse. And as she says, this is what she told the jury, only an alternative universe is helping someone get in a job abuse. And that's what Jessica Mann alleged in her evidence. So she has to say, now, he forced me to take that job. And uh, then Rotono described to the jury her favorite emails. It was a funny word to use, her favorite emails of all. And these were the numerous emails that Jessica Mann sent over the years saying, oh, got a new number. You can contact me on this and that new number. And there was even one email saying, I don't have a phone at the moment, but this is my friend's number. And she says, would you, is that five the way? Five times, yeah, there was five times where there was a change in the number where she was yeah. continually informing him of, you know, so that she had lost phones, and which would have meant that, in fact, she could have completely severed all connections with him. But in fact, instead, she kept on updating him with every possible number she even, had. Even when she didn't have a phone, she sent him her friend's number. But let's hear now about how in every one of her communications that she talks about Harvey Weinstein validating her and explaining the relationship to her boyfriend. Let's hear Donna Rotano saying this was a consensual relationship. Then the Eddie one. This is where the true feelings about Harvey Weinstein and the relationship she has with him comes to light. We know in this letter, this is where she talks about prior sexual assaults that she suffered from that had nothing to do with Harvey Weinstein. In this letter, I'll not read the whole thing because you heard it during the trial, but this is where she talks about Harvey validating her and wanting Eddie to understand her relationship with Harvey. Harvey was someone I believe had saw past the junk because of my own issues and me found ways to bond in that situation, whether they are true or not. I accepted that my father was that older man who dated women younger than me. And in turn, I would become that kind of woman because I, because of my failed relationships. Harvey validated me. He always offered to help me in ways my parents didn't. The end. Harvey was my father's age and gave me all, capital A, lots of L's, the validation I needed, I thought at the time. He offered to give me things. I refused them. I never let him buy me things or give me money, which he tried. I did let him change my plane ticket so I could stay an extra day in New York when Talita and I went to the August Osage County screening. She was, by the way, one of the other things she talked about, and we're not going to get to everything today because she basically talked for about six hours. But I wanted to, I think it's worthwhile for everyone because I suppose Annabella Sciorra is probably the most well-known of the people that gave evidence at the trial. And, and, and that, I thought she that was, was the point Rotano made was, why is Annabella Sciorra here? This happened 27 or 28 years ago. And she said, there's one reason she's here, star power. She's the only person you'll recognize from all these people. And it was to give the rest of the allegations. So she's pretty vicious about in the way that she described Annabella Shiora's Let's motivation. That. Let's hear that right now. Annabella was brought into this case for one reason and one reason only. She was brought in so there would be one witness who had some star power. One witness you may recognize and one witness whose name may mean something. Annabella makes claims in this courtroom that defy the statute of limitations so the government cannot charge Mr. Weinstein with anything that they allege happened to Annabella. There is a reason that we have statutes of limitations in this country, and the reason is so people can defend themselves. When you come in and you make a claim of something that happened 27 years ago, 
At least, we think based upon the timeline. Again, she gives us, and remember, she tells us sometime between the winter months of 1993 into 1994. So imagine, think about where you were in 1993. I was in high school, and if somebody asks me to talk about what I did on a winter night in 1993, it would probably be difficult for me to pinpoint what I was doing, where I was, and who I was with. So then she got on to how Sciorra and Weinstein worked in the real world. And, you know, there was this whole thing about the prosecution, about webs and tests and evil and monsters. But as she points out, Annabella Sciorra was 31, born in Brooklyn, like not naive. 33. 31 when she met. Well, when she met Harvey Weinstein. And he gave her his card and she phoned him. This is the thing. It wasn't like he didn't pursue her. She phoned him, right? Not exactly the the monster predator, you know, who waits around for his victims to phone him. And in Sciorra's words in the trial, she became part of the Miramax team. She then laid into the character of Annabella Sciorra. And let's hear that now. She is not a naive, dumb woman. Annabella Sciorra spent most of her time in Brooklyn, New York. You saw her. She was tough. She was smart. And what did she do when spotted somebody in the back that she thought was taking a picture? She said, who is taking my picture? Who is taking my picture? That's Annabella. Annabella is not a shrinking violet. She wasn't somebody who was going to let someone push their way into her apartment. That's not who she is. She is the person that stands up and fights for herself. She is the person who says, who is that in the back? That's who she is. She is the person you saw on David Letterman laughing and joking about not telling the full truth. That's Annabella. Annabella is not the addicted, valium-popping, alcohol-drinking person she wants you to believe that she was. And if at the time she had a problem, again, in the alternative universe that they created, her addictions are Harvey Weinstein's fault, too. It's insane. It's absolutely preposterous. A grown woman decides she is on a set that she is overworked and decides to take volume and say, Harvey Weinstein made me do it? You remember the questions I asked her. Did he open your mouth? Did he stick the pills in? Did he put the water down? No. Did you refill your own prescriptions? Yes. Did you go to the doctor on set? Yes. There was a Walgreens in my building. Did you fill it there sometimes? Maybe. And then here she is in her Valium hat. So somebody who wants you to believe that she was suffering from some addiction, then several months later decides to make fun of it, and she says, that was my cry for help? I was thin and unhappy? Well, most actresses are thin, and that doesn't look like somebody who is very unhappy. You know, it was pretty much a pylon on Annabella Sciorra. You know, Annabella claims she was raped in 60 Gramercy Park. She's asking how believable it was that someone would get to the 17th floor without getting to the doorman, without, you know, all the security. So they even had a doorman, as she reminded the jury, who was able to say that could not happen. So there was the whole can incident where he turned up allegedly and was in the room next to her. But again, and arrived at her door naked or with a bathrobe with wanting a massage. But again, she never reported this. So it was pretty much a pile-on to her. And again, there was another pile-on at the end. Let's hear that where she says she piles on to Annabella Sciorra about her motivation and takes a little dig actually at the Me Too movement as well. 
the first thing Annabella says to Harvey Weinstein is, I remember what happened. And it is an odd thing to say because I think what that does is that clearly indicates that she was in some form of inebriation, whether she was drinking too much or whether she was popping Valium. If she was sober and raped, she would never say, I remember what happened. It is a very odd phrase. If she and Harvey had a fun night out on the town and drinking, which culminated at her apartment where Paul Felger told you was they did something crazy, that's not rape. It's two friends maybe doing something crazy and Annabella saying, I remember what happened. And if we look at Annabella through Dr. Loftus, Dr. Loftus talks about 27 years later and what can happen. There are resentments. There is a changed view of Harvey. There is a failed career. There is financial struggles. There is Ronan Farrow calling and she says nothing happened. But Ronan has a theory And if she fits into his theory, she becomes relevant and she can become a star again. And that's exactly what happened to Annabella. She is now more relevant than she was before. 27 years later, after telling Paul Feldscher that she had a crazy night with Harvey, she has changed her memories and now she was raped. Once again, she is a star. She has new agents and now she is the darling of the movement of the minute. So it was really a day of laying into the evidence and indeed the accusers of Harvey Weinstein. So she attacked Don Dunning, another one of his accusers, Tarali Wolf, another one of his accusers, who um, whose case wasn't strong enough when she first went to the DA, but then she went to a DA recommended memory slash trauma slash psychiatric expert, and suddenly after fifty five visits, the case was strong enough. Gloria Allred came in for a lot of abuse too. Every accuser was tied to Gloria Allred, not in a good way, implying that they were out for money. So it went on for a long time and then there was a very powerful closing. Oh, it could have been, you know, it could have honestly been a scene out of a Weinstein Uh, movie. He might have, you know, produced it himself. And Donna Rotona's closing was, it was very dramatic and powerful and passionate. And as she mentions earlier, though, she won't be the last voice the jury gets to hear, which is, she was sorry about that. But I suppose in fairness, what's going to happen is tomorrow they're going to hear from Lucy Orban for the prosecution. And then they'll have the whole weekend, and in fact, the long weekend, and it'll be Tuesday before they get the final instructions from the judge and they will retire as a jury together. So let's hear, you know, let's finish out the program today, actually, with hearing Donna Rotono with her closing remarks. And I think it's a powerful lesson, actually, in sort of in civics, actually, by the way, about the criminal system. Let's hear her now. This isn't a game. It is not some rubber stamp media version of events or to kowtow to the court of public opinion. This is a criminal trial, and in a criminal trial, proof matters. It is a criminal trial where evidence matters. It is a criminal trial where we don't judge on sympathy or emotion. You have been the jurors in the case of the people of New York versus Harvey Weinstein. You have seen and you have heard the evidence, and you know now what you did not know when you walked in. Harvey Weinstein is not guilty of these charges. The state has failed to meet their burden. And you don't have to feel sorry for them because they win when justice is done. They are not supposed to have a stake in the game. They are supposed to bring to you a case and hope for justice. They win whenever justice is done. And in this case, justice demands a finding of not guilty. 
not because it is easy, and it should not be, and not because it is popular, because it may not be, and not because the pendulum swings so far in one direction or another. Because the great thing about this system, when it swings too far one way and swings back another, this system is the equalizer. This is the system that says they have to prove it. This is the system that says it is their job to bring justice. Not because it is popular, not because it is easy, but because facts and law demand that finding. Over the last couple of weeks, you have sat very close to this table, almost on top of them. Maybe sometimes you heard their comments. Maybe times you exchange smiles or glances and hear them talking in my ear every chance they get. We are on the other side of the room, and we don't get to share that intimacy or closeness. Some of you may feel connected to them, or even us, God forbid. But as you know, we are all advocates, and we are actually the least important players in this game. The true star of the show is the testimony, the evidence, or the lack thereof. And I don't know what Ms. Aluzi will say tomorrow. I'm sure it will be good. She's a good lawyer. I have a feeling it may be emotional and may be, at times, loud. And she has the last word. The last word is a powerful thing. And if you have learned anything about myself and my dear friend and trial partner, Mr. Sharonis, you know we love to get up here and give the last word. But the law does not allow that. You have been empowered with what you need to answer those questions. And every time Ms. Aluzi says something, I want you to think, what would Ms. Rotuno say? What would Mr. Sharonis say? What would be the response to that? Because I don't get up. I I do not get to get up and answer those questions for you. But you have the tools to ask those questions for me. Ask Miss Aluzi how Harvey got up to Annabella's apartment. Ask her why Annabella didn't think it was rape and did not tell anybody, but years later, Rosie Perez comes up with a story to match her friend. Ask Miss Aluzi how she can reconcile Mimi's conduct as a truly sexual assault victim. Ask why Mimi changes her story. How it always was there to change and change and change to hurt Harvey more. She will have answers, I suspect, and they will be full of emotion and maybe sometimes anger. But that is when you remember the facts control, the evidence controls. And at the end of this day, this table wants to win so bad they can feel it. The pressure to win this, this city at this time, they wanted to win so bad they didn't call Tommy Richards, who was at the Doubletree the day of the alleged rape. They want to win so bad, they didn't call Claudia Salinas because she refuted the story. They wanted to win so bad, they did not call one police officer because they knew what they would do to them. You are going to go back to the jury room on Tuesday. You will think about the burden of proof. You are going to think about the presumption of innocence. And you are going to read the law. You will hear the law and instructions that the judge gives you. And when you do that, And when you think about it, the behavior and the actions and the emails and the contacts and the loving communication and the way Mr. Weinstein treated every single person that asked for help, you will realize that the tale that they wove and the story that they spun where women have no free will and no choice and no ability to engage in relationships that maybe they didn't think were appropriate or what they wanted to tell their friends and they did not want to admit they were for gain. Maybe in that world, you'll see that facts 
don't matter. But in this world, to Mr. Weinstein, to Mr. Sharonis, and everybody else at this table, and to you, facts matter. Evidence matters. And when this case is over, we know that you'll do the right thing because justice demands it, and you'll find Mr. Weinstein not guilty. Thank you. And that is the end of today. It's a, yes. a very big day. I mean, as I said, we could have, this particular podcast could have gone for about four hours. Yes. And there was lots, so much said and so much we couldn't get to cover. But it was, I thought she did really well. It's hard to know how the jury are going to react. One thing I will say is only three members of the jury were taking notes. I thought there'd be more because this was, you know, all along this trial, sometimes you do get confused between the different victims and the different stories. We get confused sometimes too. And I was, I was interested, only three, and it was three of the mythical middle-aged white males taking notes very assiduously. So... I don't know what that says, but uh, no one else was taking notes. So it it was a very powerful day. It was a long day. Tomorrow's going to be the prosecution summing up. And then next Tuesday is the judge. He says he's going to take an hour, but we never know things drag on or things are over quickly. This is a podcast. If you want to help us keep making these podcasts, please go to the unreportedstorysociety.com and, and give what you can or go on podcast and rate us or leave a comment. We'll read them all and we really appreciate them. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Today's podcast is produced by Unreported Story Society and Magdalena Segeda and Raquel Lerman of Theatre Planners. Written and presented by Fela McAleer and Anne McElhaney. Directed by Kiff Scholl. Donna Rotano is played by Caitlin Carlton. Judge James Burke is played by Thomas Fasella. And Harvey Weinstein is played by Kiff Scholl. Edited by Mark Aramian and engineered by Chris Gardner.